what? For once, I don't feel compelled to say it's been a while. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Someone for our viewers, it's been a while, but like for us, it's been a week because we had a week. We of, had a uh, week. I mean, you know, we actually had a hangout. We actually talked about things other than the podcast. Who knew? It was good. <laughs> it was very good. We have a life outside of this we recording. We did talk I about the podcast also, but we talked about things that weren't the podcast. Well, that's true. And speaking of which, we have news about that later. But of course, before we continue on with our usual, like, you know, rigmarole, hey, this is Trying to Be Kind. It's a podcast about taking academic looks at books, academic texts mostly, focusing on them using a TTRPG lens from the eyes of three people who are nerdy. And one of us is a, is a real academic. And, well, speaking for myself, I'm not sure if I'm one. I'm, you know, Fiona's the one with the PhD. Okay, so, I'm as usual, <laughs> as Jared's usual, <laughs> as usual, we start off with a question to introduce ourselves from this little coven. And, yeah, why don't we start from our death dealer crone, Fiona, because this is your question. Hi, so the question this week is, why are games important? And I'm Fiona Maeve-Geist, and I think games are important because games are part of the public imagination in which both the accessible materials for the public domain and also the use of derivative art form are incredibly important. That there's also a bunch of labor issues tied up in it, and I think games also are a huge part of the world. I think taking games seriously is interesting. And, oh my gosh, um, Fiona. You know. You, 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 <laughs> I was just like, of course Fiona gives a real answer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Shit posting wise, though, the only game that's important is the games I play with your mother. Got him. Damn. Okay, good, good, good. That, that, that redeemed yourself a bit. <laughs> Hi, I'm Yeah, Mahar. lest I take this too seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Mahar, and why are games important? It's, well, you know, because they're fun. That's really what it is. Like, I think we need to look more into fun making as an actual thing of study. It's rather surprising how much very few people talk about play in ways that I consider to be important, though I think the actual activity is important in and of itself. And yeah, I think I just like having fun and but never with anyone's mother. Only with your daddy, but never with your mother. <laughs> Y'all. <laughs> My name is Jared. My name is Jared. I don't know who these jokers are and talking about their their strange mommy and daddy issues. Uh, <laughs> but I think that games are important. Well, you know what? I'm I'm not even going to go there. I think that games are I think play is important, first of all. And I think games are perhaps important insofar as they're a new art form. I think that that's how they're most important to me. This is a relatively young art form, and therefore it should be looked at as critically as we can, as we can manage. I, th I think I'm personally more interested in play than in games, which is a distinction that I draw. Don't come at me. Don't at me. And I think play is really extraordinarily important for so incredibly many reasons. But I think play is most interesting as a transformative or a potentially transformative bit of 
agency, right? It's we talked a little bit about this on previous previous book, uh, Dangerous Games, but I think that's that's for me the most important and the most defining characteristic of play is this um, sort of liminoidal potential to create new humanities. So having said that, and segueing a little bit, I'm I'm hoping to get quite a bit out of our book that we're doing this this season. Okay, so what's the book? The book this season? Is it season six, Jarrer? I think season so. Six? I think so. See, you know, I, six seasons in a movie, y'all. Well, look, the way I see it is we have done this for so long that we, we had to start this during the pandemic. This is the, f- we're starting our, we're going to basically be like year four. You know, we started this in 2020 <laughs> and it's still, you know, the, the start of this decade is still time is, has lost all meaning. So just historians will have a field day. Anyway, so the book is Critical Play, Radical Game Designed by Mary Flanagan published by the MIT Press way back in 2009, actually, 2009. So this book came into our radars, I think, care of Jared and Fiona. As usual, I have nothing to say about these things because I'm behind compared to these wonderful geniuses. And this is where we're going to talk about a bit of a different way of approaching books. So if you've been listening for the last four years, thank you very much. What we've normally done with our books is that we actually go delve into it chapter by chapter. On a personal note, while this is thorough, I will also say that it is exhaustively exhausting <laughs> or exhaustingly exhausting. Probably for, uh, as exhausting for our listeners as it is for us, to be perfectly honest. I mean, you know, I mean, we're a bunch of pedants. <laughs> I think that's accurate. Not necessarily all academics, but I think we're all a bunch of pedants. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And so, and so. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so, yeah, I think uh, what we're going to be doing this time is that, and Jared, be prepared to correct me if I'm wrong, because I am half asleep, and the coffee isn't quite kicking in, where what's go- what we're going to be doing is that rather than look at each book chapter by chapter by chapter by chapter, which can lead into like eight months later, where we've done with a book, what we're doing instead is we're going to have an introductory episode, and then each of us will helm the discussion based on our reading of the book. So we want to look at, you know, what we really got out of the book and start discussions from there. And after that, maybe have a closing episode. So yeah, like we're for, each, we'll yeah. each take an episode pl- to play moderator of a panel discussion about the book. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, who knows is interested in about the book, I think. Who knows if we'll have special guests or so on, because honestly, I'm going to say this right now. This book, (laughs) this, okay, this book, I will not say it tries my patience the way the previous book did. It's like reading the argument of a friend, someone I know, you know, who thinks like you and, you know, you respect their thinking, but you're going to have a hard time telling them, babe, what you're doing. That's how I read this book. This this is that is how I read this book. It's like, oh gosh. Like it's not I'm really going to have to try to be kind here because I've heard the same kind of language used back when I was in my theater days, in my dramaturg days and how people would just basically use whatever convenient theory was out there. And yeah, this is this is a book where I think theory is rather conveniently cited. And I yeah, definitely uh, yes. I have similar impressions of the book so far. I've read the first 
two ends and change chapters. So I read the intro chapter and then the dollhouse chapter and then some of the board games chapter. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, uh, my reaction to it thus far is, well, one, I'm really glad I finished chapter one before we hit record today because mm-hmm. right up, I mean, it was down to the wire until she started talking about the Sims at the end of chapter one. I didn't think this this book was going to be worthwhile at all. I didn't think we were like, I was literally going to show up today and be like, do we even need to do Should we do a different book? <laughs> like, oh it's, my gosh. It was, I, because it takes so long for her to get to actually talking about something that looks like a game or like play to me. There's so much talk about paintings and, and movies and like other, you know what I mean? And very little mm-hmm. talk about actual actual games or play. Well, but, I'm trying to contextualize that, right? Yeah, and I think, it, it I think feels what like, she does end up yeah. doing is she's building sort of a, or at least I think what she's trying to do, I'll keep it a little smaller, in chapter one, or chapter two, the dollhouse chapter, is to build sort of a conceptual vocabulary so that then she can talk about The Sims. And I think she does a pretty good job at talking about The Sims. There, it's a little shallower of a discussion of The Sims than I'd really like, but that's something we can talk about in a in a real episode. But I I did finally see that an argument happened at some point is really what I want to get across. Um, yeah, so because it didn't feel like one bas- was going to happen. Yeah, this is basically the the argument episode. So why don't we start here? And basically, this book it's an MIT Press book. MIT Press has done good for us in a few other episodes, uh, a few other projects, right? A few other like yeah, seasons. Sure. So I am nervous that this might be the thing that breaks the thousand average, you know, like <laughs> MIT, Look, you were batting a thousand and now this might be the one time. No one, no one bats a thousand. Like if you can bat 300, like you're probably going to manage to have a full career. Like it's fine. I- I know, I know, but you know, it's almost like when your good student gives you a B plus work and you're like, I want to give you an A. Oh, you know, like, you know, that's like, did you dial see, us I in, the, babes? I have the fun thing of I've actually read this book before. I realized while reading it. <laughs> One point I considered Wait. leaving philosophy for game studies and it's the book that made me decide that I wanted to stay in philosophy. Yeah, oh I God. said this to Fiona earlier that if I were vetting games game studies as as a field that I might enter into and I read and I came across this book first, I probably wouldn't think very much of the field to be perfectly honest. Like I don't want to be super rude to this book just yet. I want to finish it first. But yeah, like it's not it's not leaving me super plussed at the moment, let's say. Um, I will say that one of the things is I don't think it has a bad argument. I think that it's a book that could use refinement. I think that it's difficult to invent a language. Like, I have been a graduate student. It is hard to invent a critical language when there isn't one. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about something as vague as games. And also, gamers are incredibly hostile to, like, actual analysis on the level of criticism, let alone on the level of theory. Like, far okay. be it for me to say that, like, this is entirely bad it's just not for me or the way i do things oh my goodness that is that is so kindly said fiona like well <laughs> like i i gamers i want to stress really this like, the, like here we go <laughs> like 
I, I do want to stress this because sometimes I come across as somewhat cutting or I can be somewhat cruel. So a very real thing is that I do not believe the author of a work and the work are synonymous. I believe that I can say I don't believe that the work was good without transitively saying that I think anything about the author, right? Like, so if I also make critical points about something, I take it seriously enough that I believe that you should argue about what they're saying, right? Like, I, if I said that this is dismissible, that it's just bad on the level of I don't want to talk about it, there is nothing to learn, that would be bad, right? That would be a problem with the author. I would do it differently and it challenges me in the way that I don't agree with it on almost anything is, you know, still interesting. And also, there is something productive about running into brick walls. Okay, so let's let's get let's break this down. So what is the argument of this book? And I'm going to pull off directly from how MIT Press describes the book. So. MIT Press claims that Critical Play Radical Game Design by Mary Flanagan is an examination of subversive games, games designed for political, aesthetic, and social critique. So, for many players, games are entertainment, diversion, relaxation, or fantasy. But what if certain games were something more than this, providing not only outlets for entertainment, but a means for creative expression, instruments for conceptual thinking, or tools for social change? In Critical Play, Artist and game designer Mary Flanagan examines alternative games, games that challenge the accepted norms embedded within the gaming industry, and argues that games designed by artists and activists are reshaping everyday game culture. Flanagan provides a lively historical context for critical play through 20th century art movements connecting subversive game design to subversive art. Her examples in quotes of Playing House include Dadaist puppet shows and The Sims. She looks at artists' alternative computer-based games and explores games or change, considering the way activist concerns, including worldwide poverty and AIDS, can be incorporated into game design, arguing that this kind of conscious practice, which now constitutes the avant-garde of computer game of the computer game medium rather, can inspire new working methods for designers. Flanagan offers a model for designing that will encourage the subversion of popular gaming tropes through new styles of game making and proposes a theory of alternate game design that focuses on the reworking of contemporary popular game practices. And that is, I think, largely accurate based on what I've read so far. But I'm going to say this, the claims, the claims that we're focusing on, there are three. And Fiona and Jared, feel free to jump in. Claim number one is that games designed by artists and activists reshape everyday game culture. So that already for me is a bit of a wonky claim. Well, it's a bit only of a nothing burger. Like game shape games culture? Yeah, of course it does. Look, it's a it's a games have come a long way since Pac-Man, which I'm just <laughs> going to flagrantly steal from Tim Rogers for this episode because there's going to be a lot of times where I'm just going to say games have come a long way since Pac-Man, somewhat sarcastically and yeah. it's gonna cover yeah. kind of I, how yeah, i feel this a, lot, is where a lot of game studies <laughs> this is like you know like games designed by artists okay change the world okay well, huh? like well, aren't game world, designers artists game in and culture. of themselves just game okay culture. let's make the smallest uh, claim possible they exactly. only so, interested in talking about game and it's like that's not and that's not even what the book is arguing i don't think i think this is i a live problem a match with the blur. i li- 
no, it's not the blur because it's activism. I think it has a focus on activism. Mm, but apparently okay, no, that, there, yeah. that there are activists who are saying of the media we should choose to change things, the one we should choose is a game. It basically says that it is a relative pathway to be an activist is to be a game designer. So I think yeah, that I, is I the hate first that claim. But it's a claim being made, that right? claim. But that's what a book's doing for sure. So that basically that game design is a mechanism by which activists can subvert whatever narrative or whatever like cultural practice through making people play their game. That mm-hmm. is the first that's the first claim. Mm-hmm. The second claim is that God, I can't believe I'm gonna say this. Oh, here we go. That that the second claim is that game design can be subversive. And in doing so, it is subversive as subversive art movements. So, which I find a little bit like, mm, because, you know, that is a very subjective thing. I don't think people agree on art all the time. I don't think people, th- basically, she goes very, she goes very Foucauldian here, I think. It's oh, like, I would argue know, this is anti Foucauldian. <laughs> like, I, I'm gonna say that, like, it, I it, think she's an anti-Foucaultian uh, claim. It feels it feels Foucaultian. Oh, does it feel it feels a bit Foucaultian actually to me because it's almost like the ability to the ability to swallow discourse through the hegemony of a game. Well, like there's an there's a we're we're going back to the ideological state apparatus here. But like, that's how I see that, it. God, I'm gonna sound like such a fucking pretentious wank, but whatever. But, like, the thing is that, like, Foucault is not Althusser, right? Like, he's not a structuralist, and that's one of the reasons that using the two of them together doesn't make sense, is that, like, what is a materialist structuralist who believes that there is no such thing called ideology, other than ideology as, like, something produced in institutions in a very networky way that is very mechanistic, and that the reason Foucault is different is that he thinks that discursive practices exist in the body, because he was abusing a lot less amphetamines than Althusser was, you know. Okay, because so Fiona, while I agree Stalinists with you. on fucking amphetamines <laughs> don't actually have very good analysis of human behavior, but they are good Again. at paranoidly believing that institutions control you. As Fiona, a Marxist, I, I think that he. Needs I do to study agree with you. Humans, I, <laughs> Fiona, I do agree with you. And what I why why I find this rant so funny is that. The author does use both go and I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I know. Okay. Because okay. So, but that so that that's the that's like that's how I was saying. I can't believe I'm going to say this because you you launched into the criticism. Yeah. Before I could I'm even sorry. launch into it, but it, no, no, no. I just like it's. Very but yes, funny. like no, the 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 rant. We both rant from the same place. Uh, we're ranters of the same cloth. <laughs> okay, and then. Okay, and then the third one, which I haven't quite gone into yet, is that there is a model for designing which will now let you do this, and that there is a theory which allows you to rework existing game practices. So basically, she enters praxis, the author enters praxis, and basically says there's a practical way to approach this activism and argument which i haven't seen that so, last thing show up yet in the book i don't know yes if it's, it's chapter eight so it might okay. be really late yeah, it, in the book that makes sense it it's in the finish right like a lot of yeah. the stuff you can kind of draw out what there's going to be because on trying to be kind 
I do think that the intro summary chapter does a good job of outlining the project. And, you know, I think it does also a thing that a lot of academics do very poorly. Even if I disagree with definitions, it does lay out the definitions of critical terms and how they're going to be used for the book and then doesn't go back to them, which like, I think everyone yeah. as a writer could use it sometimes remembering to do that. So, I'll, so yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll mention a couple of things that sort of struck me approaching the book. One is specifically talking about the arguments, like the, the three claims that you outlined, Mahar. There's kind of a structure happening inside of there that has some implications that I think the book is not teasing out and are a little, they're worth being skeptical of. So this is maybe something, maybe this is a preview of something we'll, we'll touch on again, either in my episode or one of yours, but it's, it's this idea that like games are a, a progeny of previous art forms that were themselves subversive, right? So insofar as art has a revolutionary or Subver or a subversive capacity, games are only the most recent entry into that long litany of art forms that can do this. But there's also a reflexive quality that it's it's sort of taking on where she talks about previous art forms like poetry and sculpture and whatever else, or not poetry, painting, painting and sculpture and whatever else, in terms of its capacity to be a game right so there's this there's this idea that any kind of subversion is play and it, and therefore makes the art a game in some capacity or at least playful a playful situation so there's this like thing that i can feel accruing this idea that i can feel accruing in the background that anything that's subversive is play insofar as it's play, right? So like a thing can only be subversive through its capacity to be playful, which I find a little, may, maybe, <laughs> you know, but you, she's going to like, we're going to have to deal with that in the book somehow, or else it's just like not a claim. Well, it's not a real claim. You know, you have it, to make the claim well, and, yeah. then, and then, like, and then trying to be kind here. I agree with Fiona in that. I think that the the beginning does lay out what they're setting out to prove quite well. Like in chapter one, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. So I see a series of claims being made quite clearly. The claims are clearly given. It's a substantiation behind the claim that I'm just kind of like, how did we get here? So yeah, I guess, I I guess that's what, I'm, be what our, I'm pointing at is there are, yeah. there's this world of implications to the specific claims that I think aren't being sufficiently treated and really, really should be. Okay, so like, just a background for everyone. We discuss books before we actually start recording, right? So this 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 book has been on our radar for the last maybe three months at this point, and been dipping in and out of reading the whole the whole dang thing because we have lives. But <laughs> let me just say a little behind the scenes here: when we first read this and started talking about it, I actually felt my intelligence drop, not because of the book. But because I did not have the same level of reaction that Fiona and Jared had to it. Oh, yeah. I was super <laughs> hostile to the book from from the very beginning, which I've softened on quite a bit. I know I sound like I'm being really critical of it. But my initial reaction to this book was extreme <laughs> visceral hatred immediately in the introduction. And I, I mean, the screen grabs alone. How about you, Fiona? 
<laughs> like, I guess, like, like Fiona was like, how shall I quote how how Fiona felt about this? To quote Fiona, also, I am four pages in and I am steaming about why, all caps, enter screen grab. So as I spent the last year being kind to someone who honestly did not make it easy, this is probably I'm, the season I'm going to be most foreboding ellipses, Fiona. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do think that there's a thing, which is maybe me being slightly defensive, which is fine, of... I am a very autistic person. I think sometimes I come across as more hostile because I don't have a very modulated voice than I really am, right? Like, I don't have a range of expression. So when I'm being critical, the fact that I'm not necessarily just trying to grab someone by the face is, like, not, like, clear. But, like, right, this is the kind of work that I worked in at times. And for a thing, on theorizing about art, where I'm going to make a claim, and I don't think that it's a great one, but it's also very helpful for working artists, which is this. Art doesn't do anything. Art asks questions is pretty much what you should learn in any like fine art class, because your goal is not to answer a question. If you solve world hunger, you didn't make art. You solved world hunger, which is probably better ultimately than being an artist. No offense to artists. You know, just like a grand world usefulness thing however i take umbrage i have a bfa and i worked hard for that (laughs) no like let me be clear here i'm not saying artists don't work hard like making art is hard people get incredibly angry when they see the price for artwork when it's like bruh like what is the raw material cost of making this before factoring how long it takes to learn how to do this process and then do it on this level Amateur painters that learn from Bob Ross, you know, are still painting on a higher level than most people in history. Like, being a good painter takes years and years and years of learning how to work with paints and colors and what you want to paint, right? Like, being an artist is, in a way, fucking weird. I live in a city with an art college, you know, I go to art galleries occasionally, right? Like, Artists are trying to work out a process. Activist art often has the problem of it has to, right, do or say something rather than ask a question. And I think games effectively square that. But the problem is that the definition says that anything that's art or a game is an art game, especially if it's political, which I don't think is a good framework for value, right? Because I'm going to say ahead of time, mm -hmm. I think that this ends up going around and making the argument of the inverse of video games cause violence, which is just ultimately video games cause violence of making people do moral things in games is making them more moral or a better person. And I don't believe that ethically that could possibly be true. Okay. That said, I I could be proven wrong by the book. I haven't read the last chapter for... at least it's been a hot minute mm-hmm. yeah like <laughs> so like i also was a much younger and angrier person but reading the introduction did this really bring some of this up for me because it's like look i i also worked at the intersection of these things of there's the situationists sitting right there making games that are also about activism and that one is just skipped for monopoly 
Like, well, you know, I mean, like this is this is how I interact with it, right? Like, because we've had a lot of game movements, like, or we've had like I I don't want to say art movements in games quite yet. I will say I think we've had a few like popular ideas or ideas that trended in games for a while. And one of those is the lyric game, right? Where you're all about the feelings and it's less about system. It's all about experiential, so on, right? Where the act of reading the, the game is in itself like the game and so on. All of these other like threads which have been coming up left and right. My, my thing to this is, is that the claim so far is as it is, is that it doesn't, it seems to make this presumption, and I hope I'm wrong. It seems to make this presumption that because the game was written by someone with activist leanings, or let's be even more blatant, with an activist agenda, people who play the game will become persuaded to adopt the, the activism, or do they do it unconsciously? And that's where I find the beginning problem with the, with the argument, which is that there is no discussion that I find cogent yet so far that the process of of persuasion and of advocacy is necessarily explained well. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point is that it's, you know, the, the, the like causal link between what a game is in itself, what happens when a person plays with or of the game itself, and then what, like, what causal link that could have to the person's mm-hmm. like eventual beingness after you know what i mean like any transformative things the the causal link between those is just not addressed at all thus far thus far yeah, exactly opinion. exactly so that's where i get a little bit confused so like okay it's it's supposed to be a game for advocacy and then later on she has all of these examples of how when this movement happened and then this movement happened i'm kind of like wait a minute there were so many other social forces happening at the same time as these movements that to say that the game is somehow, I'm like, wait a minute. It's either they were an effective avenue for advocacy or they were just one in a large milieu of multiple advocacies working for towards the same thing. So how can you really prove the efficacy of your medium? I'm, I'm just, you know what I mean? So- I'm just, Mm, and i'm gonna mm, i'm gonna say the most like odd thing i'm gonna say today probably in that i think that this is in a way also in every way that i'm going to criticize it for the rest of the time that this exists is a thing that we talk about i think it's very much a product of its time in that it has a really odd style of writing that like having read hundreds of academic books from the era, I am very aware of, right? In that it suffers from, I think, and how it wants to make its argument, having a kind of stuff a grad student knows about that is scattered around enough that you can draw a line to the conclusion that you feel confident talking about, right? Like, I think some of the picks are odd, but then they're things that it's likely that you would know about one way or another by being a grad student right? Like, down to art choices. And that that kind of makes this feel like it's making grander claims, but also is trying to build a credibility for the claim by having a lineage, right? Like, yeah, because a lot of this is also like 20th century greatest Mm -hmm. hit stuff, right? Like the Dottists is one of those things where like, they're kind of the Beatles of taking a theory degree, 
Like, yes, the fact that you could subvert the expectation of art by offending people is like the coolest thing ever. Please ignore all of the John Cage work that I think is way more Mm. interesting and also might work for this thesis better, right? Like, I think that John Cage's, like, compositions of, like, space and live feedback to music as, like, a social experiment is maybe a good example of what I think could be the what is a transformative sort of space in an art thing that doesn't have ideology as such and then she could make the jump to and here's what happens when we jump in ideology and it's good right like i think that it just wouldn't have the same prestige on putting the names together right like there is a footnote in this book that involves a john cage quote that we are going to talk about extensively because it I, it is it's baffling and infuriating to me, just so we're clear. John Cage is super okay. important for this. I I will admit right now I have not read John Cage and I based on Wait, what you're saying, he's I a should. Composer. He's a composer. He does music. So one, this maybe describes why it's like a very specific and culturally situated thing, as you and I were talking about before the show, Mahar, but also right, like John Cage's whole idea was that you could make music that's public and participatory, but that also challenged the boundaries of music. His one that's kind of a shit post is 33 and a third, which is a performance at piano performed by opening the piano and sitting at it for a set amount of time and then taking your bow. That is the performance. <laughs> yeah, so the, okay. the idea is that the the music, such as it is, is the sounds of the audience. So it has this... Uh, participatory quality that Fiona's talking about but it's it's John Cage is super super important to especially to any discussion of games mm-hmm. since the middle of the 20th century in my estimation not only because of the participatory the participatory side of it that he's doing but also he's doing what's come to be known as aleatoric music meaning he uses a lot of random processes to generate music or rather Sometimes performance will involve randomness and such to, to some degree, in addition mm-hmm. to the composition side of things. So this is all sort of yeah, that, like that ties into games very clearly, I think. Capturing yeah. that is the stuff I was referencing is that like he made these sound sculpture things that are really big for the history of electronic music, where like there's sculptures that receive information that process into music or that affect the electrical current of a musical performance in ways that become like what I would describe as like a loop pedal that is people being there create a feedback loop that starts creating a series of reactions and then the variety of transmitters and the people in the room make the sort of soft white noise pick up bits of conversation and stuff and like make sound in odd ways but also down to some stuff is like a theremin where you can put your hand near it and it starts oscillating everything and that like that was the music the music is that the room exists with all these electronics and then the guests at this event are the art and i i do want to point out like in fairness that the book the book came out in 2009 mm-hmm. and we didn't know shit in 2009 you know what i mean like the game studies have come a long way since 2009 i want to be clear that in this field this is a very old book in this 
It's not Homo Ludens old, but it is referencing Homo Ludens. <laughs> so like, which? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's one of the other things that's hard for this book, and where I want to practice charity is that, like, as much as I'm kind of dunking right now, also like games as a theory thing has such a thin field of what's considered real history that isn't either a subfield of mathematics, right? Like, there's the stuff about probability and logic that ends up in computer science things that is like a lot of what I was interested in philosophy for a while that led me down some weird rabbit holes. But at a certain point, also, when you run down that game theory becomes about like working for the US military during the Cold War, at least in English language sources. Yeah, and game right? theory is like, its own can of worms. There's <laughs> there's like and i i can understand not wanting to like be like yeah in the middle of this i'm just going to talk about nuclear deterrence theory for a while and like how the basically government made a D game of nuking and then spent their time trying to maximize nuke strategy with a bunch of dice and computers you know like it's not only like inaccessible, but it's weird and also involves like directly talking about the military a bunch, which is not a good idea in the United States if you'd like to get tenure. But speaking of, of Homo Ludens, let me just take this opportunity to speak directly to all the game studies people in the world. You don't have to talk about Wizinga. You don't have to talk about Kawa. You can just leave them alone. They're, they don't need to exist. We don't need to talk about them. This book. So here's I'm going to bring this up right now. Because it's not actually, it's just petty. And it's not, <laughs> and it's not actually relevant to any real arguments. This book multiple times, and when I say this book, I do mean Critical Play by Mary Flanagan. Multiple times makes this move where it cites Roger Calois. And it, it, it says, every time it says something to the effect of, as Roger Calois has argued, games are very important to culture or are reflective of culture, or culture affects games. And it's like, well, no shit. Like, that's true of all media. That's true of everything, <laughs> you know? Like, why do we need to cite Roger Calois to say that games exist inside of and are affected by culture? And the, I, it, the only thing I can imagine is that she just imagined that she needed to say the name Roger Calois in this book. And let me tell you right now, you don't. You don't have to. They're pretty much useless at this point. IMO, as a person who's not a game studies person or even an academic, I don't ever want to see the name Tweezinga or Kawa ever again for the rest of my life. That's where I stand on it. Well, I think that that maybe pops to a thing where, for all the ways I'm going to be critical or whatever, there is the problem that in academic work, you have to cite, you know, like back sources. Like, you're not allowed to just say, games are important you're supposed to say that like there is on some level instantiating research right if you're in the humanities you maybe cite one person or you say since the dawn of you know an early publication man has taken games seriously or if you're trying to be a bit more progressively say humankind or you know etc there's a lot of variations on it and if you're in the more scientific end, you put end parentheses and you cite a number of survey papers and also people who are considered like mandatory reading for being a scholar, right? Like, this is not an effective way of communicating things to a popular audience. And I understand that that is a struggle, especially with games. So I was especially having read a lot of game theory, you know, in the last of, couple of years. I was talking to my roommate 
about this book. I was complaining to my roommate about this book. And he's he's an actual academic, like teaches at a university. And yeah, I was complaining about the book. And he said, and again, he's not even like seen the book, but he's his assumption is that this book exists mostly to justify college, like a university course. Like the the that Mary Flanagan very likely put this together as something to sort of build a course around which I find somewhat compelling having read through a chunk of the book now, mostly because it it does make sense of the weird shape of it. Like it's super lumpy and there's big holes and things. And it feels like she's just sort of aggregating a bunch of information so that she can present and do something with it rather than trying to make maybe an entire argument in the book itself. Does that ring? Yeah, that, that rings true. It is like a problem of academic publishing, you know, that and also like, things where you had to write it for an audience that's not your audience and then you have to re-edit it for like a normal audience or you just don't yeah so i mean it's it's one of those great i had to present this to like university donors or like older and like more official parts of the university so i have to explain like anything about pop culture you know like if it's like if you're doing something about like gender theory you have to go back to the mid-century and talk about mid-century scientists like it just helps because that is like the point of reference that people of a certain age have. And then you have to like, it's like, it's especially hard in cultural studies, you know, where it's like, you know, if someone hasn't really gone out to the movies since the nineties, try to explain like what a twilight is to that person who maybe knows about it because of their grandchild. Like you have to break out some like pretty weird ways of doing citation, right? Like, but yeah, that, that, I, <laughs> I think that potentially, if that is the case, or if that's even to some degree the case, that maybe makes makes it make a little more sense that Kawa is just sort of name dropped without any real reason. Because if it if it's if it's a signal to a student to like, hey, this is a name that you should be conversant in to some degree, that was probably true in two thousand nine. So that makes an amount of sense to me. Yeah. Like, I do think this is important to building game studies in some way by being a very survey thing where I don't like a lot of it because it covers a lot of ground. I'll say this. uh, Chapter two, as much as I was like, I kept I was uh, the whole time in chapter two, I was waiting for the other shoe to drop because, again, like the name of the book is Critical Play and I'm waiting for it to happen. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, show me the play. But we did get there eventually. Uh, but it's, it's, I mean, it's about dollhouses and like playing house. So it's in there. But it was a really cool sort of survey of that world, that sort of world of playing house and playing dollhouses. And I, I didn't have any of that. And that's super, I find that super useful and interesting. So even, even if I'm not sure exactly that the book justifies having all of that material in there, I think it's, um, it was still nonetheless really interesting material for me to read. So I'm happy it's about that. It's a neat wonder camera. Like, for real, there's bits of it that I think are interesting or about things I think are interesting. I don't like the central argument so far and don't remember liking it the first time I read it. It'll be fun to talk about Giacometti. I really like Giacometti. And I really like the pieces of Giacometti's that she's pulling on, even if I think that she's representing them in a very strange way. So that'll be fun to talk about in the board game section. Mahar, is there anything you're looking forward to? Honestly, I was just listening to the two of you riff off of this book, and I was like thinking, <laughs> I was taking down notes, actually, 
And now I'm going to have to read through quite a bit more because, to be perfectly honest, I haven't read a humanities kind of text in a while. Mm. So I know my undergrad degree is in, in theater, but I have since moved on from theater in terms of my academic thinking. So to have to go back to it, I'm like, oh, yikes. Uh, this is painful. I, I could feel the hackles. <laughs> like rising because I'm like, oh no, this feels this feels potentially painful having to read through everything. That's the first thing. The other thing is I think it's really going back down to the substantiation. Like claims need warrants and proofs and evidence. And I don't think the author quite makes it. Like it's too I mean, okay, almost all academic arguments will cherry pick at, at some point in time, right? You you can't help it. For no one knows everything. We're talking about something narrow. Like yeah, to be exactly. clear, you, that's at least yeah. my belief about how you should present academic argumentation is choose something very narrow and cover it really well so that like your argument is very tight. And if that's yeah, you know, very exactly. limited, exactly. at least the claims that you make can stand. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's no such... There, there, I have yet to see an academic argument where, you know, like, it's not thoroughly rebutted, but still has some, like, you know, veracity and truth and meaningfulness, right? Like, you need to write the argument... This is me. You need to write the argument knowing that rebuttal is coming. Mm. Like, that's how I think academic writing should be. For you sure. need to write it knowing that... There will be other disciplines and or other other ideologies or ways of thinking which will critically examine your argument. So you have to cover your bases. So in this regard, I'm kind of like wondering, was this written knowing that game design was a thin time? And this is where I'm being a little bit uncharitable. Because yes, you know, it's a product of its time. And of course, you know, you can you can you you know you can be understood like that was that was what's going on but at the same time i'm also thinking well the nice thing about being the first one around also means that you're going to be the first one there which means no one else is there to really throw stones at your argument yeah that's my thing is why not swing for the fences right make the you know, biggest wildest claim like, you can that's right, that's like, my thing the well, audacity you know <laughs> yeah exactly well also just that like i do believe by timeline at this point Ian Bogost has published the thing that makes me consider going into game studies, right? Which is the cow clicker thing, right? Like, mm -hmm. which I don't think is published as a book, but you know, he took a game studies argument. He made a game on Facebook games that proved kind of how click farming works and ended up kind of doing an early expose slash game theory slash like public performance that like is interesting because he intentionally made what is basically a click harvesting game and yet people were angry when he canceled this game that just exists to waste your time like yeah, it's it's funny i speaking of bogost like 2007 he published a game a book called persuasive games which i think is oh man i i i don't agree with that book in very many ways at all. I, I've got like my arguments are run counter to what that book is doing, I think. But it's doing a thing like it's attempting to answer questions that I find really interesting to ask. It's it's dealing directly with the rhetorical dimension of games 
and specifically of games. Like he's interested in play, but he's talking about games. And that's something that I, I talk about the rhetoric of games constantly. Like you know, on some level, everything I do is talking about games rhetorically. So like, that's really, really important to me. And that was in 2007. So like, yeah, 2009 is a moment before video game or before game studies was like, like we, we've learned a lot since then, but there wasn't nothing either, I guess is what I mean. There also was much of yeah. the forge, Jared. People are forgetting about the forge again. Oh no, they're forgetting about the forge. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's not go there. Um, <laughs> but no, but in all seriousness, right? That's something that we're going to have to, I think, contend with yeah. over the next few readings of this book. Because there's so much material that for me doesn't have to be there. Yeah. And there's, there's so much material, material that should be. Sure. Yeah. There's a lot of material that should be. Like, as much as I like the doll chapter, which is actually chapter two, I believe. I want the whole like, thing to be about The Sims. It is so, it's exactly. such a shallow like, reading of The Sims and it shouldn't be. That's the whole payload I'm, of the chapter and it's I, just not there. I'm like, really? Like, seriously, you're going to tell me what a dollhouse is and how people interact with the dollhouses? Okay, great, fantastic. But how does it... I'm like, okay, it's there. And they were kind of subversive, yes. And kids like to play with things and, you know, let their dolls do violence. Okay, fine. Yeah, yeah. But I'm just kind of like, but at the end of the day, that all just feels like happenstance subversion. It's like, if your argument was activists can use this purposefully, and now you're going to give me examples of where were they used purposefully? I don't think it's fully covered or it's just glancingly used or it it so happened. I'm like, but where's the intent, right? And what's more, what I find funny is that, oh, look, it's the player who made it subversive, not the, not the artist. Yeah. So like, oh, when they started changing the clothes, it became so subversive. But wait, was that their design or was it them? I'm like, so who's the real designer here? Is it the player or is it the the artist, the designer? So I'm like, again, the, see how the argument gets so wonky so and fast. And it does that a lot. She flips, she and flip flops it, a lot between the game is inherently subversive and, because of these things. Mm. And then we immediately turn around and say that actually play is inherently subversive. And it just does this constant thing. And I know I'm me and this is all I ever say. But once again... We're conflating in really confusing and muddy ways what a game is and what play is, and these can't it's, be the same thing. It's, well, it's pedantry. I mean, it's, we're pedants. <laughs> well, we're, we're, this is how we're well, going to. I don't. I'm going to make it a, a strong claim here, and I feel like by the end of this season, where I will have the last episode, I will prove this claim. Okay. Oh God, let me like marshal this properly, right? I think that there's something confusing about the way that we're approaching this argument that needs to separate, that doesn't separate, yet also says are separate, designer, game, player, and play. Mm -hmm. Because I think that this is how we end up with like all hat, no cowboy, but also because it's confusing that in the way that this is phrased, the fact that we get together and play a podcast, if we do that if we play D&D not on the podcast and you know we go to a bar and Jared reads poetry to us all of them could meet the definition of a subversive game the way that this book presents them mm -hmm. and yet i think that these are all very different things and should be talked about as different things right like 
and that it's really yes, useful to talk about them as different things. And it's not very useful to talk about them as, as the same thing. Like we don't gain a lot from putting them in the same bucket. Yeah, like the trying to make a homogeneity from which we can then create like characteristics ruins the idea that maybe things are not homogenous in how you can evaluate them. Like the thing that I will at my most pretentious also say, right? The observer observing the art matters. For art to matter, you have to matter. For your opinion about art to matter, you have to matter. And the thing is that every single human being that exists, actually many animals, many like concepts, many things, because I am an animist, <laughs> right, do in fact interact with art and through it take something from it, right? People gather every fucking year to go see the Mona Lisa because they believe it's an important painting, even if everyone will say that there's different reasons. This is not an original argument. I am not making an original argument here, right? Like, I am trying to make the tamest claim possible so that people will not doubt me, right? Like, and if I say that the Mona Lisa and Thomas Kincaid draw as much money and then say that that because of that, they're the same thing, you would tell me that I'm fucking insane. You would tell me that art history exists. You would tell me that industrial production exists. You would tell me that there's more evaluations of the world than fucking money. You would tell me that, like, there's something about art that maybe matters about, like, people making it, and whether or not the artist is living or dead. And I would say, hey, you just said that, ga like, non-games should separate these things out. Maybe we should separate these things out. And yet, whenever I say system doesn't matter because I don't think that we should say that system and the designer are the same thing because it makes it immune to criticism and that we shouldn't say that rules have mind control because that's insulting to you as a free-thinking human being, you know, for me to, to say the most Alex Jones-sounding way of finishing that <laughs> sentence, but I'm trying to, to credit my audience with being smart, a thing that I hope for for everyone, you know, like, then why is it? that we don't want to talk about these things separated from each other and develop a critical language. And the answer is that it might involve your feelings being hurt because maybe you made something bad. You know, on that note, let me first pander and say, yes, our audience is smart because they can recognize Fiona from voice alone. <laughs> <laughs> they, they heard it and they went, oh, that's Fiona. That's the first one. The second thing is, Yes, we are still remembering the forge because I heard that system doesn't matter argument. <laughs> Sorry. Look at us remembering the forge. I'm being a troll. Here, yeah, here's my thing. claim also. I've defeated every thinker in the forge. Literally. If you come at me with forge theory at this point where I've said this in public, my entire response to you is fuck off and develop a new argument or refer to the things I've said in public and beat it. Because I don't think you can. Oh my gosh, Fiona, fighting words. So I would like to say I will that, meet anyone uh, in the 7-Eleven parking lot. <laughs> disclaimer, disclaimer. Trying to be kind does not advocate for physical violence, nor for emotional violence. Intellectual violence is questionable. <laughs> oh, I, I will say that I will meet anyone in a squared circle, a fair game in which we meet on even ground to determine who's right. 
I would I would also like to say that this is Fiona's challenge, so don't come at me, Jared. <laughs> Trying to be yeah, kind with, is not affiliated <laughs> with Fiona guys. I am a separate person, uh, okay, just really Fiona working out my own bullshit about theory on this. But like, I'm sick of having a boring argument where I say something is bad, and people say that what I'm saying is that the designer is a bad person. Yeah. If yes, you yes. can't so, understand that argument, I can't have a conversation with you. Okay, so. We do have our own alternate mixed martial argument fighting league, and Fiona does head that. I'm joking. I'm kidding. <laughs> that was not real. Yes, no, mixed martial was argument is a very good phrase. That was very that's very clever. Okay, that has replaced what was previously my favorite pun involving academics and fighting, and that a friend made a flyer for a fake club at my college called Atlas Slugged, the objectivist fighting league. To see who would show up because they wanted to join an objectivist fight oh club. Oh my god. And honestly. I'm sorry. Next- Can I just say, anyone who likes Ayn Rand and says that it shaped them in a positive way is a red flag for me. Get off of our <laughs> podcast. If you like Ayn Rand, get out of our house. We don't want you. Like I was I was recommended The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged in high school, and I read it. And I was like, okay, I can see how you... But later on, my eyes opened up and realized, oh God, the kind of person who reads this is the kind of person who thinks government should simultaneously disappear and yet blame government for everything that didn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) A.K.A. Paul Ryan. Anyway, moving on. So we're at the point where we should probably wrap up, but I do want to say that we spent this episode dogging a little bit on the book and that's fine and good and I'm happy about it and I think it's it's good to do but I've got the next episode I volunteered yes. to go yes. first Jer Bear is our Jer Bear is our Katniss Everdeen that's right I, uh, I'm, <laughs> yeah. and I plan to attempt in in the spirit of the name of the show I'm going to attempt to mine this book for something worthwhile. And and I, I've just in the couple of chapters I've read, I've got some good ideas about like a through line, like how to how to talk about it. And I'm I'm actually pretty excited. I feel like we don't get we haven't had the opportunity very often on this podcast because we we end up doing a certain type of book that address games certain a certain type of way. We don't get to talk about art very much. You know what I mean? And that's sort of my whole bag. I I talk about art because of my schooling. So I think it'll be fun to get to talk about stuff like John Cage and Giacometti and whatever else next to games and see what happens. So I'm all of that to say, I'm just very excited. Even if I don't, I'm, I'm not super enamored with the book at this moment. I'm still excited about the discussion next week. And I hope it's going to be good. That's all. Well, you know, I think we all have our initial beginning claims. I think that Jared, your initial claim would be more of more of a question of my instinct is what you seem to be saying is that you're going to be looking at how what the intersection of games and art are and their function based on what you're saying. Mm -hmm. I know that I'm going to look at that design chapter fairly heavily and ask myself because I like I like looking at whether game theory from the past actually does influence current game practice or design practice. So I'm quite invested to see if this activist like design method is actually there or framework or whatever is actually one that's feasible. Though I enter with considerable doubt. 
<laughs> I will I will say that much. I'm I'm trying to be kind here. I don't want to diss the argument and say, you know, but I'm like going back to what Fiona said, it's very hard for me to look at actually for me it's just also problematic in a way of, of making the argument, which is to say we have a design methodology or a design framework or we have design thinking and tack it at the end of the book because it says two things. Number one, you're saying that the design thinking can't work without all of this background knowledge, which I've so far found as superfluous. And secondly, it's like, well, then you're not really focused on practice because you're not focused on modern practice because all of your examples are previous practice, which may or may not be relevant to now. Like even, even assuming that, I might, let's be even more generous. Are your design practices at least relevant to 2009? Because that's when the book was published. Mm -hmm. And I, I have my doubts. <laughs> I, I honestly have my doubts. So trying to be kind here. I don't I would like to be proven wrong. We're I'm gonna look very for it glad, and see if you can find it. Yeah. I'm very glad to be proven wrong. Because when I'm proven wrong, it means that someone has now guided me towards the path of being correct. And then I will be smarter. Hell yeah. That is good advice from my father. It's one of the few pieces of advice I actually think is makes sense. But it's very hard to prove me wrong. And that is some arrogance and some truth. So, and then Fiona will take the final, the, the, the third week. We don't know it will be a final week, but Fiona will take the third week. And we've gotten all, some preview of what Fiona's interested in, I think. Oh, I, look, this is my heel turn season since we're allowed <laughs> to assign each other some stuff. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know what I promised a long time ago? And I would never lie to our audience because I have never lied. <laughs> but, um, it is Wait a minute. Wait we're gonna a minute. play what? professor white's book the game we're gonna play it and we're gonna use this book to evaluate it oh no no fiona why do you why do you... evil evil fiona i my mental health is already in very shaky ground <laughs> why would you why would you i mean i can if you if because you're the one asking i will do it yeah but I just want you to know that I'm not that well insured. <laughs> Even though I live in a country with socialized medicine. <laughs> Look, my friend, I don't understand not running towards fire. Like, <laughs> I have a damaged sense of risk assessment. It's why I'm an okay gambler. Like, I, I think that I learn best by setting myself on fire. Like... And See, clearly, meanwhile, meanwhile, I suffer from, like, medical, medical grade, or as my therapist calls it, weapons grade anxiety. <laughs> oh, my friend, like, for real. It's like, I took Xanax XR once, and, like, I cried because I just didn't feel anxiety, and it was also hard for me to operate things, like, walking around, because I had no idea that things were dangerous. Like... Literally, it just turns off my ability to, like, actually assess threats, but I also don't feel any anxiety, and it was incredible, and I never wish to do it again in my life. On that note, <laughs> yeah. just, what I'm, what I'm, the advice I'm hearing is, take a Xanax before reading this book. Uh, <laughs> we love Xanax here. If they would sponsor us, that would be great. Um, <laughs> Give us a I call. Do, because no, my actual I solution currently is death meditation, right? Like, I think that a really helpful practice is to do death meditation until you lose your flinch reflexes. Mm -hmm.